love that song. Just the proclamation of who God is to God and uh, about God. 5.30 tonight. Hope to see all of you here tonight. I know it's already been said and you all know this, but church family, tonight at 5.30, be right here in this room to continue our Can We Talk About This class. We are studying the role of women in the church. And so for those of you who are watching online and maybe can't be with us, we want you to keep up. We will post those online after the study. But the real benefit of doing this, one of the real benefits of doing this is being together and breaking up into our breakup rooms and and talking about this. So it's not just me talking about it tonight. It's us talking about it tonight. Tonight's pretty foundational. Last week, we started the study, but last week was really... How do we walk into hard conversations? This is a hard conversation for some. Tonight, we begin the hard conversation about women's role in the church. So please join us uh, for that. I want to start this new series by reading to you the first verses in Matthew chapter 5. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, okay, stop right there. So if you were a first century Jew reading the book of Matthew, and just if you're used to reading books narratively, and you were reading Matthew's narrative, right here, by the time you got to those words, here in chapter 5, you would be on the edge of your seat with anticipation about what's going to happen next. Why? Because up to now, four chapters of this gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus, four chapters, and we don't know. He hasn't taught yet. It literally says, this is when he began to teach, but you've learned tons about Jesus. Matthew has established him as no ordinary man. And he's a prophet, but it's gone well beyond that. No ordinary man prophet. If you were a Jewish reader, the genealogy would have been enough, just his pedigree. It doesn't mean a lot to a lot of us, but if if you're a Jew, you would have seen from whom he came, and you would have been built up with who this man is, that this is no ordinary man. It's someone that's been waited for. The miraculous birth story, that's never happened before. You would have read the visit of these wise, strange wise men from the east that evidently followed a star to meet this baby. You would have been built up that this was no ordinary man. The providential saving of Jesus while he was young from being killed by Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great. King Herod killed many people because he was worried about them taking his power. And if he wanted them dead, they were dead. He wanted Jesus dead, but Jesus didn't die because of some God moves that saved him from powerful King Herod. You would have known this was a special man when uh, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he's this rabbi that creates this massive following, but he ends up just pointing to Jesus. Could have started a huge movement of his own, and he did, but he was just an usher, a herald for this man. You would have read his temptation. Everyone is tempted. Everyone gets tempted. But Jesus, when he was out fasting in the desert, he gets Satan's attention. Satan himself is there going after Jesus. 
You would have seen it from the healings that have already transpired. The crowd and the varied crowd that's around him. Topping the list, I didn't even remember to mention this, is his name that Matthew called him. Emmanuel, God with us at this point. You don't know what he's here to teach, but you know he's no ordinary man, and you would want to know. He began to teach. What is he here to do, this God with us? What is he here to tell us? What is he here to teach? What's the message that he had to deliver? You know, we've heard the phrase, famous last words. We, we understand that. But there, there should probably be a phrase, famous first words. Because that's what we're about to get. I... It, it, this made me think when when have I experienced like the the feeling of like the the, the juice of famous first words and i I went back to when I first moved here when I first moved here, as you can imagine, that was kind of a big big move for me. It was an intense time. I was a man a young man feeling called to be here, full of purpose and commission i 've left a, a life and a ministry that I was happy in and felt useful in and leveraged by God within as a youth minister. For 14 years, I left a church family that was tight, a city that I was born in and raised in to come here. I remember feeling the importance of it all. And I was leaving a craft I knew to come do a craft I had never done, preaching. I I left a family I knew to a bunch of strangers that I hoped would become my family. And, and this was my first time to be standing here and, and I'm going to preach. And I remember thinking about it and just feeling all the intensity. And so I, what did I say? So I went back online, May 30th, 2004. And I, what were my first words to you guys when I came here? And I asked Craig to go and he found it. It's kind of a rough recording, but listen, this was, this was my actual first words at that all-important defining time at that very defining and important moment. Listen. I have longed for, for this moment right here to be over. <laughs> yes, it was very intense. <laughs> I go on a bit more and I explained that I'd been praying for months along with you for that first day, trying to discern what's going to be my first text, what's going to be my first talk, what am I going to say? I was attuned to it. Evidently, it was a bit much for me. just wanted it to be over. But Jesus, on the other hand, he traveled a lot farther than Houston to Amarillo. He is presented as not so timid. And when Jesus could have begun his teaching with any words, with any thoughts that existed in the universe. He started with what we're going to be studying this semester, the Sermon on the Mount. And within that, the Sermon on the Mount, he started with these things that we call the Beatitudes, eight or nine of them, depending on how you read them. And of all the Beatitudes, he started with this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by these words? We're going to have to walk through it. And we've got this word coming up nine times these next few weeks. So we might as well figure out what it means. Blessed. What is he? What's this word? It's the Greek word makarios. I don't know if I'm saying it right. That's how I'm saying it. You don't know better. Makarios. It it can be interpreted into English blessed or fortunate. Happy. It's sometimes translated. Privileged is a good word for this word well off. So what Jesus is starting out with his first words is saying that 
The poor in spirit, whatever that means, we'll be looking at that, find themselves in this privileged, fortunate position. If you're poor in spirit, you are well off in some way. Now, I'm just going to say right off the bat, and we give you permission to say this, even though it's Jesus saying this, this is ridiculous. He knew it was. He knew what he was saying would go against common sense, and it should for you too. He's not trying to make a point. He's not trying to be clever. He's literally taking something that no one wants and saying that if you find yourself there, you are in a blessed situation. You're in a fortunate circumstance. Luke's version of the Beatitudes, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all the same. and Well, the same story, but different accounts. And in Luke's account, when he's talking about the Beatitudes, he doesn't put in spirit in there. It's just the word poor. There's no reason not to think he's talking about financially, materially. That someone is poor. No one wants to be poor. There is nothing advantageous. There's no fortunate situation where you have no resources. And Matthew, adding the word in spirit to it, wasn't intended to make it something good. Matthew agrees that this is not something that you would want. It's not intended to be something that you want. What comes from it, kingdom of heaven, sure, but not this. The word poor is the word tokos. I'm assuming it's a silent P. And there's three words that my Greek teachers tell me. I don't know Greek, but there's three words for poor. The one level is the working poor. They, they're working paycheck to paycheck, just barely enough to make it, but enough. But if they are sick one day, they're behind. Then there's another level where you're, they're working or they've got some stream of income, but it's not enough. It's not enough. They are falling behind every day. And then Tokos is the one who's already down and out. There's just, they have nothing. They're completely lacking, totally destitute, no resources. If they're going to live another day, it's going to be because of someone else. They're completely helpless. That's the word used, that third level. Spirit that Matthew adds here is the word pneuma. It's the same word, exact same word we use for the Holy Spirit of God, that part of the Trinity. Spirit of God. It can refer to your spirit within you. And so he's saying something ridiculous. I want you to have permission to call it ridiculous because you're not going to want this. No one wants this. I don't want it for you. It's when you're completely spiritually empty. Poverty stricken. You've got nothing left. Nothing to anchor into. Intellectually, doctrinally, emotionally, mentally. You are totally destitute. He says when you are there. You would never try to get there, but when you are there, Jesus begins his teaching by saying, you're in a privileged position. So I hope because of my explanation of what this is, you're able to understand the Beatitudes are not prescriptions that, they're not said as prescriptions that you should follow. Like, you should, you should be poor in spirit. It, that's not it. At least six of the Beatitudes don't fall into a list of to-do things that you would put on and, and strive for or want. They're not what you would want. They're not prescriptions. We can't help but read it that way because that's how we read Scripture. Most of us read scripture looking for what to do or what to be so that we can have this kingdom of heaven, right? So we read, it's not written that way. It's written in this old 
Hebrew wisdom literature sort of way is a proclamation, kind of like what we sang there. Be to our God forever and ever. It's a proclamation of something. But we, re- we even preach these sometimes as the be attitudes. And I don't begrudge us this. There's something to aspire to in the Beatitudes. They're just not written that way. Something you be, be this an attitude and you get the kingdom of heaven. Nope. The goal is never ever to be poor. There's nothing advantageous about being poor spiritually. It's to be rich spiritually. That being empty with no more resources, completely lacking, totally flabbergasted, disoriented, nothing left. That is... That is not what you want. You don't want to be empty. You want to be full spiritually. Later, even Jesus affirms this. He says that that this riches, rivers of living water will flow from within you. We have imagery in some other of his teachings that we're packed in and and our cup is overflowing. We're supposed to be full. That's That's what we want. That's what you want. And I'm going to say that's what God wants. That's what Jesus wants, even though he's saying this. He is not saying aim for this. He's saying, when you find yourself there, because you will, you have, at all different levels of intensity, been at the end of your rope, you have, you'll find your, when you find yourself there, you're in this sacred space, you're in this, you're well off for something. It's like a rare, unique moment, it's an opportunity, it's, Privileged, you're in a privileged space, a fortunate position. How can that be? It is, it is a position that you're in that you're privileged in a way that you cannot be in when you are full, when you are fine, when you are good, when you feel anchored in to God, to your spiritual life, when you feel like you're you're pretty secure in your being and experiencing the kingdom. But he wants you to have this. He wants you to have the kingdom. Not poor in spirit, but the kingdom that results when you find yourself there. He wants you to have an experience of him that you can't have when you have anchors, when you have other things to depend on besides God. This is what he's saying. He knows the only way you can really have the kingdom experientially, him experientially is when you are empty of everything else that you normally hang your hat on day to day. Those other things that you normally use to feel connected to him. The point that Jesus is driving home here with his first words is something he brings up quite a bit throughout his teachings that the poor, the empty, the destitute, material or spiritually, Luke and Matthew are both right here, They seem to be able to access God and his presence and his rule a little more easily than those who have other things they can depend on. And so while you never want to be so low and so depleted and so lacking of all of your anchors that you use, Jesus just smiles and says, ooh, ooh, this this is your chance. This is your chance. You are in a fortunate position to be in a place where you, your need for God is not merely intellectual and doctrinal. I think most people in here, do you need God? Yes. It is a felt need. He wants you there. No one who loves anyone, I think, should want someone there. I do not want you there. 
feeling that low, that desperate, that depleted. I'm doing everything I can to get you out. Jesus, in his first words, is, listen, right there. That is the ultimate thin space. Thin space, place where you're really close. Really close to God. Really close to his kingdom. I imagine, well, I don't imagine. I was not raised this way. I was not raised with this beatitude. I read it, but I didn't get it. What I got from the teaching I was raised is for the kingdom of heaven to be mine, I needed to know enough. And what I know needs to be accurate enough and aligned enough with what I read in scripture. I need to believe the right things. I need to worship the right way. I need to live morally enough. I need to have my understanding of women's role in the church accurate enough and our practice of that enough for the kingdom of heaven to be mine. You fall out of line on any of those things and kingdom of heaven might not be yours. That's the beatitude I heard. It's not the one Jesus brings. I imagine that's how the Jewish disciples felt. These were good, devout Jews. He hadn't picked his 12 yet, but I presume they're there. A few he's called out, but others have signed on and sold out to this. With They've been built up just like everyone else, and now they're getting to hear his teaching. I imagine those guys reacting like, uh, Rabbi, that's not right. <laughs> so contrary to the whole story of Scripture. The whole story of Scripture in the Bible, right? That's their, we call it the Old and New Testament. That's the Bible. They call it the Law and the Prophets. It says you take the 613 rules that we've extracted from Scripture, you do those rules, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. You get those 613 rules right. You follow the Bible right. Then the kingdom of heaven is yours. Jesus says, no, the kingdom belongs to those who have realized that all their efforts to earn the kingdom are vain. To believe accurately enough, to practice accurately enough, right enough, to do church enough, to go to church enough, to have a minimum amount of moral fortitude, moral, you've you've taken ground, enough. No one's done it enough. And when you've lost all of those as anchors for your soul, you're close. You're close. When you find yourself in that privileged position of being poor spiritually, not strong, not I know what I'm doing, yeah, I understand what it means, I'm practicing in the right way. No. No one tries to be spiritually helpless. But it happens, doesn't it? I can vouch for this. I've had moments in my life. And he's saying it's a privileged position because you might actually experience the kingdom of heaven in a way that you can't experience it just by studying it. The words might jump out of life. This happened to me dozens of times in my life at different levels. It's the perfect place to start. In, when I was a youth minister, I would literally sometimes, I do this metaphorically now, but I would literally just want to restart over And so I would, I would push everything off my desk. (sighs) Just start over. He's saying that's what being poor in spirit is when it happens to you is nothing on your desk is working. So, oh, you're well off when you're there. So it happens to you more than you make it happen. And I've had those moments where it's happened. I remember the first time it happened to me, and I've told you this before, So when I went home from school in middle school. My mom's on the couch crying again. I ask her what's wrong. This was the first time she answered, and she 
devastated my life. She said, I mean, she didn't. What she said did. You might see the day when your dad and I split up. I know it's so common now. I'm telling you, for my little junior high kid self, this was earth-shaking. What I believed about baptism was not useful. How I worshipped last Sunday, how morally I was living my life in middle school, none of that. Things I normally leaned on to feel like the kingdom was mine, disappeared. Useless in that moment. It happened to me again in high school. I came home, my dad had been arrested, and then when I showed up at court for his court date and he was sentenced to prison, some white collar crime that he'd done, and there he goes. My faithful church attendance did nothing for me. My commitment to my personal commitment to daily Bible study and prayer, my belief about whether a woman can read this beatitude to me in church or not didn't serve me in that moment. Things I normally leaned on to make me feel like I belonged to God was gone. It happened to me most recently this last February 8th. You were here for me. My youngest son dropped dead in the bathroom and my sweet wife had to find him. She saved his life, but what she had to endure to do so, I came, I was in Houston, I came here, he's in the ICU, attached to three or four life-sustaining devices, plugged into eight or nine or ten harsh drugs that they're orchestrating to try to keep the body, see if it might kick in, and if it does kick in, what kind of life will it be preserving? In that moment, frozen in the dark of that pick-you room at BSA, I was completely spiritually destitute. I had no resources. I had a little money, and it was useless. I was acutely aware that I was poor, that I've got nothing to lean on. I'll even say this, the most important thing in the world to me, the thing I've dedicated my life to, the gospel, the precious gospel and what I know of it, knew of it, grace, forgiveness, all of my experiences of God in Jesus through his Holy Spirit in that moment, just push it all off in that moment. I am empty. I've got nothing in that dark hospital room. Nothing. I was once again completely drained of every bit of spiritual juice that I'd worked all my life to have. No one chooses that. I don't wish it on anyone, my worst enemy. But when it happens... You are in a most fortunate position, Jesus says. The audacity of him to say something like that to someone in that room. You don't say something like that to someone in that room. Unless it's true. The only way that's a kind thing to say is your famous first words of why you're here is if it's true. Because then, when it happens, you're finally in a position to be touched by the rule of God. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's not the place you go when you die. Mark and Luke call it the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. 
It's the rule, the kingdom, you should read kingship. The rule of God, it's him. And it's something that we get for eternity, but that we get here now. Because it's then, when you're poor in spirit, that you finally say from a heart level, a heart level, not from a well-studied place of Bible-educated knowledge of truth, a heart level, I need God. Whoever he is, wherever he is, however he works, whatever it is he wants me to believe, I don't care. I just know I need him. That's the spiritually impoverished person. And that's how Jesus starts. I think this is why Jesus says a little later in Matthew 19, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter that. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's impossible? No, because he's got, he's okay. He's got so many other things, maybe even gifts of God, but that he's anchored to. He's not in this privileged position. He's in one, but he's not in this one. But it doesn't say it's impossible. Those who are rich are no more doomed to not having the kingdom as those who are poor are guaranteed to receive it. Eugene Peterson says Jesus' famous words this way in the message. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. I know that... uh, trying to think of an example to wrap this up there's there's something called glow-in-the-dark items i have some they're glow-in-the-dark items and and i can know that glow-in-the-dark items exist and i can even know maybe this is a glow-in-the-dark item but until i'm in the dark and it's glowing i may not have as much faith as when i just know that's what we're talking about here with god Humility demands, doesn't it, church, that we admit that there's likely a difference between where you currently are in your understanding of the kingdom of heaven and and how the kingdom of heaven is yours and kingdom living and Jesus' understanding, right? There's, There's probably a gap. Even if you've taken ground in your life, there's probably still remains a gap. And I want to ask you this. Do you want that? Do you want that gap bridged? I want you to be honest enough along with me to say, no. Not if that's what it takes. No. Emotionally, no. I don't want that. I don't want what it takes to get to that. Just know Jesus doesn't want you to go there either. Life will take care of it though. And it doesn't always have to be as intense is what I've described my last one was. It didn't. Sometimes it's just what we're doing tonight, a doctrinal challenge of something I've anchored onto being taken away. You're in a blessed position. You're in a fortunate, privileged position. If that's you, you're close. The king of heaven belongs to you. Jesus... Uh, won't let me hang my hat on. I want him to. Sometimes I do. Not all times, but most times we do this, too. We just want to be left alone. 
I just want my current understanding to be right. And if it's not right, like all the way right, I just want it to be right enough that I can pack up from here and go to lunch and still feel good that I'm a member of the kingdom of heaven, that I'm experiencing the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus won't do that. He just loves us too much. He can't. Love demands that he give you everything he purchased for you on the cross. Everything. And he boldly allows our lives to be turned upside down because he knows it's worth it. Carrie, February 8th was worth it. And it's not just because he lived. There was some, this other category. that has nothing to do with that. If he died, would I still be saying that? I don't know. But I've met people who are farther along in their journeys that say, yeah, it is. It's a miracle. I'm going to ask our elders and our ministers to go ahead and move around the room as I try to finish this up here. I want to end with just a practical picture from Jesus. It's over in Luke where he is illustrating the difference between the poor in spirit just as clearly as he can. I can't do better than he's doing and those that aren't. Okay, those that are empty spiritually and those who have things to hang their hat on. It's Luke 18, starting verse nine. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's Jesus saying what he said in his famous first words. I tell you the truth, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Which one are you? You the confident one? You, you won't call yourself a Pharisee. You don't need to. They didn't mean it as a bad word back then. It's just a devout Jew. He was good. He wasn't immoral. He didn't kill. He didn't murder. That is good. He wasn't like the tax collector, like compromising his faith, because tax collectors, they compromise their faith to make money. He wasn't like that. It's good. He was super spiritual. He, he worshiped. He fasted. He tithed. He did the extra stuff. That's all good. But it was this broken, sinful, poor in spirit who knew he had nothing else to hang on. He's the one that has the kingdom. Which one are you? Which one are you? We're gonna go ahead and stand up here and we're gonna, I just wanna say a prayer for us before we sing this song that praise team's gonna give. Dear God, I am undone by my study of Jesus' first words. It redefines life for me. I don't know why I'm surprised. I don't know why there's still levels of understanding of the truth that are new to me. 
So God, I just want to pray your blessing from this proclamation of Jesus. That when, not if, because everyone's going to encounter it, some are encountering it now. When we are in some level of intensity at the end of our rope, disoriented, in the dark, clueless, the things we hang our hat on spiritually are threatened. Come, God. Let your kingdom come. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.